Jonah chapter 1. Um, if you're following along in the Blue Bibles, it's on page 925. Um, so let's go. So Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because, of its wicked, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon us. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. Lord, have done us as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. just going to do a bit of fiddling here. <coughs> over many years of ministry, I thought I'd had just about everything go wrong at one stage or another and couldn't have a new experience, but um, this is a new one. So I'll just add this to my repertoire. There's been some things that have happened down the track. So I'll bring this back here, then most people should be able to see what's actually going on. <coughs> Okay, well now the next question is to see whether this thing is working. Beautiful. Wonders never cease with me. Well today, friends, if um, in our newspapers, uh, we often see 
um, people who commit great acts of harm classed as something like evil monsters. You sort of uh, see these news headlines or uh, people talked about in the papers a fair bit. Those who prey on children do all sorts of nasty things to them and ruin their lives or people who kill their partners through some um, domestic violence or groups of people like us who kill people in brutal ways um, at random and even so in the name of God. I wonder how you would feel if despite all that, all that these people, individuals or groups had done, that when they heard about God's judgment to come, they repented and were forgiven of everything they'd done, became even brothers and sisters in God's family. What would be your reaction? Particularly if you'd been a victim. Would you rejoice? Or would you be aggrieved at the injustice of it all? That these people had not received the punishment that they deserved. Well, friends, it's this sort of scenario that we find lurking under the surface today in the book of Jonah, the book that we're going to look at over the next three weeks. As I said earlier, I'm going to do an overview of the book uh, this morning, and Mike will fill out some of um, that detail and some of those themes in the two weeks to come in chapters uh, two to four. Um, for now, just keep that scenario that I painted on the back burner, and I'll come back to it a bit later. I want to cover first some uh, introductory matters about the book to set it in its context. Um, and so, first of all, I want to uh, begin with an introduction. An introduction to um, Jonah. Now, in your booklets, if you have one, there is an outline there um, so that you can see uh, where uh, we're going. And so, we begin with the first basic question, of course, and that is, I'll get there in a minute, who is Jonah? Or who was Jonah? What do we know about him? Well, the answer is not much about him at all. He is mentioned only one other time in um, the Bible, in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings um, 14.25. And it says, Jeroboam was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. That's the only thing that we have about Jonah in the rest uh, of the scriptures. In other words, what uh, Jonah did, at least at this point under Jeroboam's reign, was to prophesy some form of military excess success of Israel um, under Jeroboam II who reigned we know from um, about 793 BC to 753 BC what we'd call the 8th century he comes from Gath Hefer located on the border of the northern kingdom of Israel after it's split from Judah you might remember that 
um, Israel split after Solomon into two. And ten tribes went to the north, became Israel. Two tribes were left in the south, Benjamin and Judah, and that became known as Judah. And so Jonah is a prophet of the northern kingdom. Um, sometime after that split, which happened in about 931 uh, BC. Uh, but despite what we see of Jonah's disobedience in chapter 1, um, he should be regarded overall, therefore, I think, as a faithful prophet. Um, he seems to, certainly this reference, there's no reason to think that he wasn't that, and that he actually spoke the word of God truly when he prophesied. And I don't think we should think any different just because we have this particular incident or episode in his life. The second question, though, often put when you look at the book of Jonah, particularly in our modern setting, is what sort of literature is it? What are we looking at? Is it, for instance, um, did I get there again? History? Or is it story or parable or something like that? Now, traditionally, of course, it's always been considered history, relating actual events in Jonah's life. But today, many would prefer to see Jonah as a story or a parable, if you like, um, some sort of story with a point uh, to make. Now, this is mainly because of its fantastic elements. I mean, swallowed by the fish, come on. Who's going to be swallowed by a big fish, surviving there for three days? Pray to God three days in what uh, in fact if you're a Hebrew scholar you would know is very good Hebrew poetry in chapter 2 and then of course um, the other <coughs> fantastic element if you like so much is that when we get to the end of the book and we see well chapter 3 and 4 we see the whole of Nineveh basically repent on that to the proclamation of God's judgment. Now, these are some of the reasons that people um, say what we have here is not so much, you know, actual events, but a story designed to make a theological point about God and us. Now, that's not a view I hold, um, because I think there's still good reason, even with these elements, to see these events as actual events. Most stories or other things in the Bible, you won't find historical figures like this actually portrayed. Jonah, we know, is a historical figure. He lived in a particular time. He was a prophet. He was a son of Amittai, and he lived in a particular um, area. You won't often get that in those sorts of things. And Nineveh, actual city, actual time that we see here in history was when it was around, big city, etc., very important and very evil. The other thing is, although, of course, um, being, you know, in the belly of a fish or that sort of thing is fantastic, there are a lot of other fantastic things that happen in the Old Testament too, if you read through it. Lots of, uh, you know, donkeys talk and all sorts of things happen that uh, uh, at certain times in the Old Testament. So in some ways, although you might say this is the most fantastic, mm, that's up for grabs, um, it's not out of character with things that happen every now and then in the Old Testament. But I think most of all for me, it's the way Jesus treats Jonah that matters more than anything. Because Jesus treats, refers to Jonah 
the Matthews world in very much historical terms and also the Ninevites. And he actually says that the Ninevites are actually going to judge one day those in Israel who don't repent because they did repent. And so it seems to me it's very hard not to regard Jesus' words as looking at Jonah in historical terms. So that's the way I think we should take it. Um, Though I I must add that I think the message of Jonah in some ways almost remains the same, regardless of which view you take, because the book is definitely about making a theological point about God and about us. So last of all in this opening section then, I just want to uh, say a couple of things about the setting of Jonah. Um, And have a look again, if you've got your Bibles there, at the first three um, verses of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So to get some idea, and of course this would have really been much better on the big screen, um, I had a map. And you can really see that very easily now, can't you? Um, Here. And this map is designed to show you here is Israel over here, if you can see the red dot there. And we don't really know where Tarshish is, but we think, most scholars agree, that it's over here, probably over here in Spain. So you've got a very long journey to there. Uh, We can't find any sort of archaeological records of it, but there is a city called... uh, an ancient city called Tarsetos, which was in Spain and has a lot of the characteristics that Tarshish seems to have. Sorry, I pressed the wrong button then, didn't I? That Tarshish seems to have in the Bible uh, here. If you did have um, binoculars on or something, you could actually see um, the town of Gath Tepe is there, just on northern Israel, and Nineveh is over here. Um, in uh, Assyria. Um, and so begins um, what we call in verses 1 to 3 and what occupies the whole book and what I've called the journey of Jonah. Now apart from some of the fantastic elements of the book, one of the unique features of the book of Jonah, which I find uh, fascinating for a prophetic book, See, what would you normally expect from a prophetic book? You think of your other books in the Bible um, that are prophetic books. You normally expect some sort of prophetic message. Well, there's virtually zero prophetic message in Jonah. I think there are eight words that he declares in chapter 3, verse 4. And they are those words that you see there on the screen. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, here they come, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's it. Here's the prophet, prophet Jonah. You look up all the other prophets 
Um, even, even Habakkuk, which we looked at just a month ago, which has a relationship between he and God, has all still a prophetic message in there coming from God about his purposes. But here we've got this unique book, eight words. It's really not about so much the message, the prophetic message. So many people, and I think truly, regard Jonah really as something like a prophetic biography. It's about his life, his interaction with God, his relationship with God, what God has asked him to do and how he responds. It's a story, if you like, of, the e- of an episode in the life of Jonah when he was bought, called to go and preach against Nineveh. So it's the account of his journey from, as we saw on the map, from his home in Joppa um, to when he arrived in Nineveh, except there is really rather a large detour on the way. That, of course, um, is the literal journey. But I think more important to the book is really Jonah's spiritual journey. And that journey has two parts. The first covers chapters 1 and 2, and I've called it a journey from rebellion to repentance. Now, if I put the map up again, um, it would show, and we had it big enough, visually, in the starkest fashion, um, the complete rejection of God's command. And when you look at the map, if you've got Israel here, you've got Nineveh over here, or I should go this way for you guys, you've got Israel and Nineveh here. Wow! Over there is Tarshish. Probably it's as far west as Jonah could think he could go. It might have been a known world to him or whatever. So in the starkest fashion, this physical journey represents his spiritual rebellion against God. God tells him to go northeast. He says, I'm going as far west as I can go. That's what he does. One commentator says, by fleeing from the Lord's presence, Jonah announces emphatically his unwillingness to serve God. His action is nothing less than open rebellion against God's sovereignty. Now, we don't know yet, you see, why he did it. We don't know yet what's the problem. Why does he do this? That will become clear um, in chapter 4. But we have to wait till then before we actually find out what the real problem was. Nevertheless, despite his rebellion, God has a purpose for Jonah. And so God proceeds, um, you might say, to use a New Testament phrase, to discipline Jonah as a son and to bring him to repentance. This process begins with God creating a great storm. And so in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ships threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. From there, of course, we read what was read for us earlier in the whole chapter. A great panic develops with the sailors. They cry. Each notice that they all have different gods. 
They didn't even have one God. They're all, you know, uttering prayers and incantations or whatever to their different gods. Then they throw all the cargo overboard and then they find out through casting lots that Jonah is the real problem. They question him. Jonah finally admits that he's running away from God and urges them to throw him overboard, which is not exactly what they want to do. Um, So they keep going, but eventually they pray to God, hoping that they won't be held accountable and they'll throw him over. And all of a sudden, it's a bit like when Jesus calms the seas in Mark 4, (laughs) there's quiet, everything just goes calm. Imagine the whole hotel. It just goes calm. Jonah was clearly the problem. But you see, then we read also in verse 17 of chapter 1, that last verse uh, that was read for us, that God provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and that he was in the belly or in the fish, the belly of the fish, three days and three nights. It's with that verse, friends, that we have the great turning point in the book when it comes to Jonah's rebellion. You see, he knew what he deserved. But now, he realises that despite his rebellion, God has saved him. So his rebellion turns to repentance in the form of a prayer in chapter 2, much more of which Mike will say uh, a bit more about next week. For now, just note these snippets from his prayer, just so you get the gist of it. Um, From verses 1, 2, 7 and 9, we read, um, Jonah prayed and said, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep realm of the dead I called for help. Um, And then, I got this on the wrong page. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. My prayer rose to you. And then, um, but with shouts of grateful praise, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. What I have vowed, I will make good. And so in chapters 3 and 4, we see the second half of Jonah's spiritual journey. uh, What I now call from repentance to obedience. Now, what's interesting here is that nowhere in Jonah's prayer does he repent in the way we would expect. He doesn't sort of uh, uh, admit his rebellion, confess his sorrow and sin and ask for God's forgiveness and that sort of thing that we might see in other confessions in the Bible. His prayer simply acknowledges his thanks for God's salvation and his determination now to obey God's call. And that's led some people to question whether Jonah is truly repentant. I think it's a mistake not to think that way because in the end, what's repentance about? Repentance in the end is all about turning around and going in the opposite direction, the one you were going, to follow God, regardless of how you feel. It's a bit like Jesus' parable of the two sons in Matthew 21. You might remember it where Jesus relates the story of two sons who were asked to go and work in the field by their father. The first one says, yes, I'll go and do that, and then goes away and doesn't do it. And the second one says, no, can't be bothered. But then later on, he does go into the field and work. 
and Jesus did us, who was the one who did what his father wanted? Of course, it's the second son. So who do you think? Repentance is, in the end, turning around and doing what God wanted him to do. Jonah was distressed. He called out to God. God saved him. And as a result, he turned around. Well, actually, physically, probably the fish turned around and spat him out at the appropriate place uh, a little bit later. But spiritually, Jonah vowed to obey. And so uh, the same call, God repeats his call in chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, only this time uh, with a different response. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days, etc., um, to go through it. Just trying to see where I've got there. Um, Jonah began by going a day's journey in the city and proclaiming those words I mentioned earlier, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now it seems to me, friends, that this journey of Jonah, believe it or not, is so often like ours in many ways. Now his is fantastic and those features unlike ours. But I think his journey is so much like ours for although we now have the Holy Spirit to help us, fantastic, that seed of rebellion still lies within, doesn't it? Still lies way down there. It still tempts us to move away always from what we know is the will of God in his word. But God in his love moves to bring us back when we do that. He disciplines us, as the writer of the Hebrews, uh, book of Hebrews says, as his children. He graciously forgives us through the death of Christ on the cross and calls us once again to obey him. Now sometimes that's not easy to do the will of God. We still might not, might not even like what God has called us to do. Sometimes we just prefer to do something else. It's just nice. I like it. I don't want to share the gospel with that person or another. They hurt me. Maybe you even think they deserve to go to hell. We will see that though Jonah obeyed, he still didn't like it. He still didn't like what God called him to do because he still not come to understand properly what God was really like. So to think about this world as God thinks about this world. And that brings us to the third part of this overview of Jonah. What I've called the overall message of Jonah. Now you see the book may be titled Jonah and its content centred around this journey of Jonah from Joppa to Tarshish to back to Nineveh, etc. Both physical and spiritual. But in the end, friends, its main message is all about God. All about God. It's in chapter 4 that it becomes clear 
why Noah had fled to Tarshish in the first place. And it becomes clear that Jonah's, what Jonah's problem is. It's one of a failure to appreciate the extent of God's compassion and love for the world he's created. You see, in the rest of chapter 3, we find the Ninevites respond to Jonah's pronouncement of God's judgment. He says, look, in 40 days, you're going to get it in the neck. And they respond. The king comes out when that message gets to the king. He calls on everyone to turn from their evil ways, to put on sackcloth, turn from their evil ways. And as a result, we're told in chapter 3, verse 10, um, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And God did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. At this, Jonah gets angry. He doesn't rejoice. He gets angry because he thinks that God's relenting is wrong. And he confesses that this is the reason he fled to Tarshish in the first place. It's because of God's character that I fled. It's because of what you're like that I took off to Tarshish. In chapter 4, verse 2, probably some, what some regard as the key verse in Jonah, we get, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to foretell by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You're too loving. I knew you were like that. I knew if I went and pronounced judgment, they would repent and you would relent. I didn't want to do that. Jonah's problem is that he thinks that God's love conflicts with the demand for justice. Because, friends, if you know anything about the Ninevites in that period, they were brutal. And they were evil. I mean, that's the reason God said that uh, he had told Jonah to go. Because of their wickedness, he was going to wipe them out. But I don't think that's the case. Rather, this radical act of grace and compassion and love asserts that such grace can reach the most unlikely person. God's freedom, if you like to reach the most unlikely, the most undeserving, if they repent and turn back to God. The pedophile, the abuser, the murderer, the ISIS follower. In fact, we actually see the compassion of love poured out here in Jonah um, in three ways, God's compassion. First of all, we see it for the sailors, the pagan sailors. You know, to go back to chapter 1, these poor fellows, they are caught up in a problem. It was not their own doing, weren't they? Yet they were all idolaters. They all served different gods. It's not the true God. If they'd perished, this would have been their just desert. But in God's compassion, he revealed himself to them. He demonstrates his sovereign power over creation. 
and tells them the real problem is Jonah. Even more, he provided them with a solution. Throw Jonah overboard. (laughs) Something they resisted, but in the end did. And when the sea immediately grew calm, we read this in verse 16, chapter 1. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. In other words, friends, they turned and worshipped the one they knew to be the true God. Now, did they continue to worship God and give up their idolatry? Well, we don't know. But you see, that's not ultimately the point. God, in his love and compassion, had revealed himself to those who worshipped false gods and given them the chance to repent and worship and obey the true God. That was his love and compassion in action. Second, we see also God's love and compassion, obviously, for a very wayward prophet, Jonah. Jonah is God's prophet. He's not just an ordinary person. He's the one who says, thus says the Lord. But when the Lord speaks to him about Nineveh, he says, stuff that God. He hardly deserved did he, the absolutely incredible and miraculous way in which God turned him around, in which God saved him and set him back on the obedient path. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, that he thought God had banished him by being thrown into the sea, but instead he realised that God had rescued him, that God, to quote chapter 2, verse 6, had brought his life up from the pit. But what Jonah failed to appreciate is that the compassion and love that God had failed to show and God had shown him also was true also even, even for the evil Ninevites. You see, this grace is not simply the hope of the sailors and those who belong to God's covenant people. It's the hope of all people, the hope of all cultures, even the most evil. As 2 Peter chapter 3 would later say, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The same compassion and love is the hope of all people, then and now. It does not compromise his justice, for we know that Nineveh eventually went back to their old ways in history, And the Babylonians utterly destroyed Nineveh a century later. Nevertheless, the recognition of God's compassion and love remained the only hope, whatever, for anyone at all to be saved. And yet by the end of Jonah, the situation remains unresolved. Whether Jonah gets it or not, whether Jonah gets God or not, is left hanging. The book ends simply with these words of Jonah in chapter 4, verses 10 uh, and 11. But the Lord said, should you have been concerned about this plant, I'll leave uh, Mike to fill in the details about what happened there, though you did not tend, uh, tend it or make it grow, it sprang overnight and died overnight. And should I not 
have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their left hand, their right hand from their left and also many animals. So he just leaves it hanging. No response from Jonah. We don't know what his response was to that. We don't know what happened. It's just left there, out there. And I think it does that because the message of Jonah does not only reveal God's incredible love for the world he has made, uh, but it also addresses his people, you and me, with the same call that Jonah faced, the call of becoming instruments of God's compassion and love. See, I think the end of the book is left hanging because it addresses every new generation of God's people who read it. Do we as God's people appreciate the character of the God we serve? Who we now know provided the ultimate and eternal hope for the world by sending his son into the world for us and to take the punishment for our sin. Is it our longing, no matter what people have done in the past, that we would rather see people turn to God and live than perish? Is it our burden, as we have opportunity, to be those who hold out the word of life to people day by day? Now, I've got to confess, my friends, that all too often, for me, that is not true. I'm quite comfortable, often, knowing I belong to God, have the hope of eternal life, and too often, not all that concerned about the hundreds of thousands of people out there who are lost and without any hope of Christ. In other words, I find myself all too often too much like Jonah. And I suspect that I'm not the only one. And it's not easy to automatically change that, is it? You can't sort of work yourself up (laughs) and say, be more loving. (laughs) Not an easy thing to do. But God can. He can change us through his spirit. And it seems to me the more we ponder um, things like the extent of God's love, the more likely we are to be changed by it also. So friends, Jonah is a book I urge you to read again and again. At least read it through a couple of times this week in preparation for Mike's sermons on chapters 2 and 4 and the next chapters 2 to 4 in the next two weeks. It is a book to continually ponder so that we may continue to appreciate the incredible compassion and love God has for all the people he has created, no matter how bad, so that we might also be moved in whatever situation we find ourselves, to become instruments of that love through the sharing of the gospel, that some 
at least might find the hope that we have found. Hope in Christ, the Saviour of the world. Father, we uh, thank you for this uh, wonderful book of Jonah that we read you today. Though, of course, it does um, relate uh, the way Jonah at first rebelled against you. Uh, We see your gracious and compassionate love towards him in bringing him back. Lord, this is a love we know. in our own lives and experience. And so we ask that you would fill us, uh, fill our hearts with the love that you have for all the people you've created. Help us to be instruments as you want us to be of your love to those around us. And we ask that in Jesus' name.